0: Well, I've been reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road uh, casually over the past few months, and the gist of the book is that it's a young man traversing the American West by hitchhiking and uh, working various gig jobs and making friends and finding trouble in a sort of unanxious groping for existential existence. And it's, it's strange that I've put reading off this book for a long time. Uh, I've always loved to be poets, and um, so much of it resonates with my early 20s. I grew up out West, and... Uh, It's all about seeking adventure and that was, you know, by hitting the roads and that was a lot of my experience was uh, road tripping across the American West, sort of unaware of my privilege and unanxious uh, yet eager to find significance and uh, even if I didn't know where I was headed, I was always trying to move onward and upward and uh, deeper towards something. And uh, reading that book has reawakened something in me, and I'm I'm glad that I picked it up because it it reminded me of my own story. And I feel like I've lost a little bit of that groping to move towards something. Uh, I feel a little bit stuck or I feel kind of grounded. I'm in the same place always, uh, particularly spiritually. And that's why I wanted to study Hebrews this summer. Uh, we're gonna, tonight's our first night in the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and Hebrews is essentially an account of God's redemption story and how his people fit into that. It uses all of these images from the Old Testament, uh, from the past, from history of God's people, to, to reawaken in them who they are and for what they were created. And it takes stories of God's people from Scripture uh, and it helps us see our own participation and how that is real today, uh, God's people, including us, journeying toward Him. The congregation in Hebrews is processing where they've been and they're kind of curious about where they're going, and they're being pressed to find their anchor in Christ and to find their rest in the Spirit, uh, all the while trying to keep moving toward this mountain of God. Uh, It's a book that I enjoy, but again, it's a book that I put off reading. Uh, I actually wrote my graduate thesis on Hebrews, and in my thesis, I focused on on one thread through the book in particular. Uh, There's a really cool piece to Hebrews that's not apparent to the casual reader, and that's that uh, Hebrews is, uh, is actually a sermon. It's not a letter. And so there's this communal aspect because... People heard the book the way that you're hearing me talk right now. It was a common experience at the same time, same place, same voice. Uh, It's this spoken word that's performed aloud, and it's experienced collectively by this specific group of people, uh, just like us. So Hebrews is a congregation, and they're hearing and seeing the story of God's people in a sermon. And in that experience, they're pressed to help each other see and hear uh, God and the story. So throughout Hebrews, we see examples of people living life together and trying to help people press on toward home to not forget the past. It's a book about the people of God who are on a journey closer and closer to his presence, or at least that's what they want, or at least that's what the preacher wants for them. Uh, But they're struggling to get there. And there's these themes of journey and pilgrimage and shared life throughout the book. There's no greeting in the book and the author doesn't identify him or herself. It's not really important uh, for us to figure out who this preacher is. You can google it if you want to find out who they are, uh, who the theories are. But what is important is that uh, first it was not written by Paul. I'm confident of this and uh, some of that's because of the style. But there's a more important reason for us in our preaching that, uh, that it wasn't written by Paul. Paul was not a pastor to a particular congregation. And this seems to be a book that was or, or a sermon that was written by someone uh, who's not just observing a church's broad struggles, but who is experiencing it firsthand. So this was an act of speech. Uh, spoken aloud to a group of people with specific concerns and specific affections. And it's a real pastor who is, uh, who's writing or, or speaking to a very particular people about their particular place. Does that make sense? So those are, those are some broad strokes of Hebrews to get you oriented as we go into the book. Think of it as a sermon. that was written by a pastor with affection and concern for their congregation and it wants to help these people see that they're not just associated with God. They're not just affiliated with God. These, they're, they're pilgrims walking with God. They're on a journey with God towards a perfect eternal place. They're part of the story that we read about in the past. It is important to note that this book is not about escape. Uh, there's, a, there's a form of bad theology that dominates American Christianity, and it, it infuriates me. Uh, and, and when we use words like pilgrim or sojourner, uh, we might think that it means running away from something, that you're going to pilgrimage away and just try to get somewhere and get away from something. Uh, in our case, our world would be the, the way that that theology thinks up. I actually went on a strange and passionate tirade against this in our small group a couple weeks ago uh, when we were having a conversation about death. It's important to know, going into this, that Christians do not despise the earth, and nor do we despise our bodies. Like, the goal is not to escape from the material for the celestial. That makes no sense. I don't know where that theology came from. That's very prominent. Okay? If you ever hear the hymn, "All Fly Away, it's the anthem of that theology. And it makes no sense when you read the whole Bible together. God created perfection in a physical garden with real people in real bodies. And we'll see in Hebrews 2 that God has a specific relationship with humans that's different even than his relationship with angels. He adores both the spiritual and the material. And that's the hope of Christianity, that we see ever so dimly the goodness of the physical world now. That we want to build gardens, and swim in rivers, and eat food, and create families. And for now, the celestial perfection of heaven hasn't been totally blended with the physical goodness of earth. But 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 21 tell us that these are the future for which we hope. So when we talk about pilgrimage and journey toward God, we're not talking about escape from this world. Rather, we're talking about confronting the reality of this world right now and then being aware of fixing our mind and our body and our spirit on Christ, Christ who we're united to in spirit and then will one day be in physical presence. So let's stop for a moment. When When you hear me say something like that, does that sound a little crazy to you? It sounds crazy to me. It sounds like cult language. Uh, That God would somehow be united to us in spirit and then one day we'll find each other in physical presence And I'm sure if if you're not a Christian that sounds weird and even if you are a Christian it probably sounds weird But I would ask you to reflect on our cultural moment. Um, Perhaps things are pretty good for you uh, But for a lot of us we identify with the majority of our culture, which is experiencing record levels of loneliness record levels of depression, record levels of anxiety. And even, even as our material security has never been more sure, we are groping for something more as a culture. Would you consider yourself a pilgrim as I've been defining it? You know, are you unshackled from anything that prevents you from pressing toward perfect satisfaction? Can you hitchhike and gig your way through life because your soul can do nothing but run after God's spirit. The folks in the congregation of Hebrews. I'm happy to report. We're not able to do that. And neither are we. Okay. Uh, one scholar describes Hebrews as a sermon. Pointing out a marked degree of inattentiveness. That has led to a weakened church. And I just think. That sounds pretty good for this moment. For us. We could probably hear some stuff about that. My spiritual life looks more like a phone booth than a pilgrimage. That's the image I keep having when I've been writing this sermon. I recently went backpacking with my oldest son, Silas, and we were hiking to a high place, and we were trying to beat the sunset to where we were going. And we had three peaks that we had to get over, uh, up and over to get to this gap where we were making camp. So for us, we were fixed on our destination, enjoying all the things around us, definitely, but never forgetting where we were going. And that is not my spiritual life. I'm busy about my day with work and play and rest and eating. And on the good days, I find a phone booth and I give God a quick call. And it looks nothing like the image of a trek where my eyes are fixed on the beautiful but distant destination trying to keep myself from distractions. Or, as we also see in Hebrews, apathy. I'm more like an affiliate of Christianity. I identify as a Christian. I participate in some of the life of Christ. But I'm affiliated with a lot of stuff that I'm not willing to give up. I'm willing to participate in the structures of church life. But my finances and my taste and my lifestyle are informed by my friends and by my desires. And I attribute any discomfort in my life. uh, Not as self-induced. Not as some spiritual malady, but to something outside of me that's disrupting my comfort. It's, a, it's an inattentiveness. And maybe some of you wonder if yours is even looser, yours isn't an affiliation, maybe you'd call it an association. You'd say you go to church, but you'd say maybe my life's not informed by anything particularly Christian or spiritual. Or maybe you identify as spiritual but not religious, which is pretty common. Uh, and, and in that case, what does spiritual mean to you? And I want to be careful. I want to pause here and be very careful that I'm not trying to shame these categories. Okay? The worst thing that would happen is that those of you who would say, I feel affiliated to Christianity or associated with Christianity or I don't know if I believe, uh, that you would walk away thinking that I'm chiding you to shape up and try harder to be a pilgrim. That is not at all my message. Okay. I don't think it's our lack of adventure or our lack of pursuit or our lack of effort or our lack of curiosity that's the problem. I think it's that we do not understand the settings of our own stories and God's story very well. And hopefully Hebrews can change our understanding of our stories so we become more thirsty to participate in God's. Okay, that's, that's my hope. That's my mission statement for our summer is that We could through the book of hebrews change our understanding of the stories we tell ourselves and then become more thirsty to participate in gods we're going to see throughout hebrews that the pure life of a pilgrim is one of radical hospitality letting our time and our food and our homes be overrun by our community it's a life that sees scripture as a sharp instrument dangerous powerful mysterious, worthy of constant wonder. It's a life where we read ourselves into the stories of the Old and New Testament, and each moment we're overwhelmed with gratitude for God's faithfulness and sacrifice for his people. So the sermon begins with this epic introduction, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, God spoke to his people through the prophets, but in his majesty, he made himself a person to be the message. What happens to you when you read a paragraph like that? If you're super familiar with Scripture, you can see that there's little allusions throughout this section to other parts of the Bible and to other parts of Hebrews. And this, this is a poem to start off. It's a prompt for us to be moved and exposed in our hearts to joy and sorrow and gratitude. It's really grabbing you. you know That's why we know it's different than a letter. It's not like, dear to the church in Salem, greetings from, you know... Vienna. It's it's saying, hey, wake up. God is real and we heard about him before, but now we've actually seen him. There's a lot of religious sounding words in Hebrews, but I just ask you to try to move past those if you can, uh, if those bother you. So you can try to pick out what are the themes that this religious language is trying to get us at. And this paragraph at the beginning can be summed up as this. Jesus is not just like God. He is God. He's both the flesh of a human and the spirit person of a God. God has messengers to his people across history. And now his son is the message. And the son is the one. And the son, you know, if it's not enough that he is just the son of God, he is also one with God. He is the actual creator. And he came not only with a message, but he gave up all of his privileges. And he took on indescribable pain to cleanse the earth of its guilt. And then he rested after his powerful acts as the king, which he's always been. And then the rest of Hebrews, so verse 5 and on, the rest of this chapter can be just summed up as these Old Testament allusions, painting the picture of the son becoming our king. He's our king because of the resurrection, but also he's always been our king because he's the creator. So the beginning of Hebrews is starting with a bang and saying, back in the day we learned about God from people. Now we see God because God is showing himself to us. T.F. Torrance puts it this way, in Christ what God communicates to man is not something but his very self. Now the question is, do we grasp that? Are we aware that we're not just hearing about God, but that He's actually come to show Himself? These folks were living right after He had been there, and they've already become a little checked out. They were complacent, and the preacher's trying to shock them back to remembering the terrifying wonder that God is real, and that the spiritual exists, and that God busts from spiritual to the material world. And it says he shows himself through angels in the form of fire <laughs> and even more impressively his all-powerful creative miraculous self in the form of Jesus and I just kept thinking to myself do I live my life informed by a worldview where angels which are celestial soldiers who terrify demons bow down before Jesus no I don't live my life like that is a thing you know Did you know that God turns angels into fire and wind to carry out his will in the earthly realm? Uh, I did not know that when I read this. Uh, And it's not necessarily literal, but it does point to this spiritual reality that is striking and awe-inspiring. And I walk around every day as if there's not some crazy realm like that that exists around me. This, section, this second section of Hebrews 1 is, is alluding to some of the psalms. And the reason is because the preacher is reminding the congregation of their story. They've forgotten about these images and these anecdotes that show us how incredible God is and how he's both beyond our imagination and yet he's so close to us. In contrast that with the distraction that these Hebrews have found themselves in. I imagine they were the same as the distractions I find myself in. My worries are not that I'm going to run into an angel-turned-fire <laughs> today. You know, my, my worries are fleeting. Will Aaron and I's salaries cover our desire to join a pool and send our kid to camp? You know, Should I keep my beloved Toyota Tacoma? Why won't Marco nap? Why are my children naked in public? This one happened last night why I'm a little anxious because Aaron and I are on the kiss cam at the dash game. (laughs) These are things that occupy my mind and anxieties these days. And I stress about resolving them. And they're, they're just nothing. They're nothing. They mean nothing. They'll fade away like old clothes. That's what it says in Hebrews. Like the old clothes that my children take off in public. They just get cast aside. Verse 11 says that God's going to roll up these trivial matters and toss them aside because they're fleeting, unlike his existence, which is unchanging. So I asked you, and I asked myself, is your story God's or is your story stupid and small like mine? Is your spiritual life like a phone booth? Only moments of prayer and mindfulness, or, or is your existence one of constant fixation on the wholly satisfying life of God? How are our lifestyle and our environment and our values and our desires writing a story that distracts us or disrupts us from journeying on the pilgrim's way? All summer, we're going to encounter paragraphs like these where the history of God's people is condensed into short Beautiful prose to ask us if we want to live a life of God, a life in God. Right now, we live in an age of isolation. People are in close proximity to each other physically, but relationally, we're really dispersed and isolated. And this is because of hectic lifestyles, it's because of attachment to our devices, it's because of our need to consume goods and our needs to strive towards merit. And we're quite obsessed with this material world, with a small sense of the cosmos. And even as we complain about loneliness, we embrace practices that isolate us, and we disperse into these little tiny static worlds. People are lonely in our society, and our society is anxious. And we seem to think that small adjustments, like some different goods or different relationships, might resolve these existential crises. It feels like when I talk to every single one of you, that every single one of you is lonely. And I continue to ask myself, and you've heard Ben and I talk about this, how can it be that an entire church that I think actually errs on the side of being very disarming and relishable, how can it be so full of loneliness? I don't know, but that must mean there is something in the zeitgeist that is affecting us. New York Times columnist David Brooks has this New book called The Second Mountain. And to introduce it, he wrote an op ed titled The Moral Pale of Meritocracy. And in it, he describes these two mountains that American individuals pilgrimage toward. He says one is the first mountain, people on the first mountain spend a lot of time on reputation management. They ask, What do people think of me? Where do I rank? They're trying to win the victories of the ego. These hustling years are also powerfully shaped by our individualistic and meritocratic culture. People operate under this assumption. I can make myself happy. If I achieve excellence, lose more weight, follow this self-improvement technique, fulfillment will follow. I've been trekking towards that mountain for years. And this shows that deep down, I am not living a life in God. I live in a story that wants stuff and wants significance and wants attention because my soul is not enraptured by the truth that God has shown himself to people and continues to today. But thankfully I can fear not because that was what was going on with the congregation of Hebrews too. Now Brooks's second mountain is the destination of people whose pursuit of the first mountain has been disrupted mid-life by a death, by a chronic illness. By some suffering that, that grabs them, and if they can resist bitterness, they come out with a deeper sense of human existence, and they shed the, merit, the meritocracy. The theologian N.T. Wright says, we live in a strange time of progressive Epicureanism. And that's a, kind of a big term. But what he means by that is that the ancient Epicureans were devoted to the pursuit of happiness and pleasure as the highest end. And he's saying we have that in our culture, too. He says it's a little different. We may confess we believe in Christ, but we spend our days looking for food and cocktails and clothes and digital images all to consume to bring us momentary pleasure. We want career satisfaction and compensation and relational bliss over spiritual depth and significance. And Wright says what is strange about our version of Epicureanism is that the ancients sought pleasure because they said, this life is futile and fleeting, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But we've blended that with a pursuit of, we've blended this this pursuit of momentary pleasure, okay, with this humanist assumption that things are are getting better, and they're gonna get better every day with science and political progress, things are gonna get better. And those two things have never been uh, united in the history of human thinking. We want to eat, drink, and be married, and we assume that technology and relative morality will not bind us, and that that's working, despite the fact that mental health and loneliness have never been uh, more severely uh, oppressing our society. So, do you want to be a pilgrim? I do, but I'm not, I'm not there. Uh, what is on offer to us as pilgrims from the book of Hebrews is a life of joy, a life of contentment, a life hidden in the creator who came as flesh to die for us and rose from the grave in his power. But you may say in your own story, spending your days criticizing your spouse or your coworkers because they keep putting the diapers in the wrong place or loading the dishwasher wrong or running late for commitments. One friend told me that her story is that when she feels insecure, she has to start helping fix people's problems without them asking. Maybe you chase upward mobility, you know, maybe you chase degrees and promotions and a carefully cultivated Instagram. Maybe you, like me, fixate on wanderlust, and that's your story. You spend your days daydreaming about other places you could go or jobs you could have. Maybe you hoard your stuff and your time and you don't share it and you clench to it. Maybe you're afraid that people are going to abandon you and you're afraid that time is changing so you're only motivated by fear. Maybe you try to escape brokenness through fun consuming lots of Amazon packages and good alcohol and momentary adventures? Maybe you push on other people's weaknesses to preserve your own individuality? Or do you simply hunker down in passivity? Are any of these your stories? This summer, I want to change course. I've been standing at the trailhead of the meritocracy, spiritually stuck and dreaming of momentary pleasure. I want to grasp my brokenness instead of numbing it with daydreams and consumption. I want to shed that brokenness and give it to the one who walked up Mount Calvary to crush it and in the process crushed himself. I want to take my selfishness and my pride and my bitterness and trade it for a life in God. I want to walk up the trail that he opened for me to Mount Zion, the heavenly city. So I hope that we can walk together. Amen.